but the camera isn't on. It's just recorded, right? Yeah, you're good. My guest today is Professor Asra Rasa, who's Professor of Medicine and the Director of the MDS Center at Columbia University. Her research focus has been the identification of the presence of cancer as early as possible and to prevent it from developing into its end stage, <laughs> end stage monstrosity. Welcome, Asra. Thank you so much, Gil. Delighted to be back with you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So we, we talked a bit about state of the art in cancer diagnosis, cancer treatment. We talked a bit about policy. Um, I think we talked about Biden's, was it the Obama's or Biden's initiative to, to cure cancer? Um, Biden's, I think. Um, and um, so, so, so we have had this problem sort of uh, increasing in the population, right? Or sorts of cancers. And I was told, uh, Asra, I don't know much about this, but every cancer is different. Uh, every organ is different. Every patient's cancer is different. And hence, it's very difficult to, to treat um, cancer. Um, and so, so, what, so what is the state of the art in oncology today? The state of the art is spectacularly bad. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to just uh, tell you a little bit about my background and why yes. I started with cancer. And then I want to hear you tell me something because uh, your background is absolutely fascinating, Gil. Um, I was a teenager when I started reading about cancer. And I found it absolutely fascinating that one cell within our own bodies has unlocked the secret of immortality. No other life form on the planet has the secret. Everything dies. There is a hay flick limit to all cells. They can divide up to 40 to 45 generations and then they stop and either undergo senescence, silence or they die. But cancer cells, one, are not inhibited by any growth controlling signals anymore. Two, they don't even bother to mature. They are so busy dividing mm. and perpetuating their population. And three, and this is where I need your input, Gil. I found it fascinating that, look, the whole structure of our body remains intact because of very severe architectural rules and restrictions. A liver cell cannot migrate to the pancreas. A pancreatic cell cannot simply get up out of the pancreas, float into the blood, go land itself in the bone marrow and start growing there. No, it never happens. The integrity of the body is maintained by exquisite rules, right? Cancer is the only thing that breaks these rules. So it doesn't respond, respond to growth inhibitory signals, the cancer cell. It can doesn't have to mature. And it can walk out of its organ of origin and travel to far-flung areas in the body. And four, it's immortal. 
I found these things absolutely fascinating. And you are a, an engineer by training. So I want to hear from you, what do you think of, of these things as a, an intelligent, but non-medical um, person who is uh, genuinely curious about everything. We know that because of the wonderful podcasts that you've done over 301 year on topics that probably range from the nematode all the way to, uh, to, to, to quantum physics. So you tell me what, what kind of an engineering scaffolding is needed uh, for this kind of uh, migration to be possible. Yeah, so my first thought, Asra, obviously I know nothing about this. Um, so my first thought is that if I were to observe this phenomenon from outside, I would say this is sort of an extraterrestrial um, thing um, because it doesn't look anything like the, the Homo sapien structure, right? So it's something extraneous to uh, what we expect to see in human biology and chemistry. Um, but we know it's not extraterrestrial, right? It, it is sort of something changed course and became sort of behave like extraterrestrials. And so this is one of the issues that we have, right? We don't know how to treat it because it's not quite human to treat. Yeah, but here's my thing. In my introduction, you said that I've been interested in early detection of cancer. I think that's a very important thing, Gil, you pointed out. I started my career in 1977 by studying and treating acute myeloid leukemia. Very soon it was clear to me that in my lifetime, this disease won't be cured. And unfortunately, I was more than right in that in 1977, the two drugs I was using to treat AML, I'm still using the same two drugs in 2021. Mm. This is an embarrassment. This is, uh, we should be ashamed of ourselves speaking to patients. Uh, think of me, thousands and thousands of patients that I've given the same talk to that you have one third of a chance of making it to two years with this, you this toxicity. I mean, what we do to people with these drugs, nothing has changed. So in 1984, I turned my attention to trying to find these patients before they develop leukemia at the pre-leukemia stage. And that is what is called myelodysplastic syndromes. Yeah where the blood counts fall, but the cancer, but the cell is not as crazy right now. Meaning it is still able to mature and it dies earlier. So the blood counts fall, but my hope was that we can intercept the development of cancer. After studying pre-leukemia for a number of years, it became clear Gil, that even that is a very malignant disease by itself. So the damage has already been done. We have to go even ask the question why some people got pre-leukemia and study them. So here's what 
the issue is killed. I started to imagine how cancer, how the first cell starts. I've been obsessed with finding the first cell. How does it begin? The model that everyone is following today was proposed in 1970s. And the model is that as one cell divides into two, it has to double its contents, including the DNA. It can make DNA copying errors. That error is known as a mutation. So with age, our cells are not as efficient at correcting these mutations or killing off the cell which contains the mutations as efficiently as when we are young. So the cell that contains this mutation then becomes uh, a rogue element and it starts proliferating unchecked and dividing and develops all the hallmarks of cancer. And this DNA copying error has been considered to be a random error. That just because the cells normally proliferating, it undergoes this. So this model is particularly attractive, Gil. You know why? Because it offers the opportunity of treatment that yes, there's one mutation, and we can have a mutation for pancreatic cancer, one for ovarian cancer, one for lung cancer. And we can have a magic bullet to target that mutation. Basically, this is model from 1970s to 2020. When we were not finding these mutations by looking at uh, the DNA of patients, uh, the, the National Cancer Institute put a lot of money into sequencing the entire human genome. And the thinking was that once we do that, we will be able to cure many chronic diseases, including cancer. We'll find what the problem is. Uh, some several billion dollars and 15 years later, the genome was sequenced and it found nothing. It was spectacularly um, dampening for the spirit because of researchers, because nothing came out. In fact, less than expected number of proteins were found. Hmm. 20,000 genes coding for proteins. So then the thought was, oh, we should be sequencing all the tumors. Instead of looking at the normal genome, let's start sequencing. And because there were so many sequences, sitting in everybody's labs now, and this is what they had spent 15, 20 years doing, hmm. they can't turn back and do something new now. So, yeah, I'm thinking as well that, so mutations are unavoidable, and one could, one could think about them sort of a stochastic process. It's uncertain. We don't know what mutations are going to happen. It's a bit like, you know, saying you go into a stock market and then you look at history and you see all these patterns and those patterns are going to make you money. We know demonst we know for sure none of those things actually work. So so if if mutations are fundamentally a stochastic process, what you're going to get is 
all sorts of noise in the data that you cannot really treat by systematic interventions. And that's what pharmaceuticals are all about, right? Yeah, exactly. I think you have hit it on the head. Hit the nail on the head, exactly. So the problem that I was uh, leading up to is that people then started sequencing tumors. And what they found is that for every tumor, there are hundreds and hundreds of mutations. So far, except for two cancers, chronic myeloid leukemia and acute promyelocytic leukemia, targeted therapy really hasn't cured any other cancer. And if I ask investigators, name one gene you think is cancer causing, they can't because it can cause cancer in one patient, but same mutation in another individual doesn't cause even disease of any sort. You know, there's no mutation that you can, no gene to this day that you can point to and say this causes cancer. So then why do we keep insisting it's genes? Mm. So the way my thinking goes, Gil, is <coughs> I kept thinking about it and it occurs to me that the first cell cannot arise out of nowhere. There have to be some kind of stresses going on or something happening that gave rise to this cell. And in thinking about it, the most common thing is presence of inflammation, chronic inflammation, mm -hmm. either due to some infection or some exposure to toxins or autoimmune problems, but something is stressing an organ. Let you and I imagine for a minute that a hepatitis B virus infection occurs in the liver. Now the virus starts multiplying, but in the process is killing lots of cells and there's a lot of inflammation happening. Cells are arriving from the blood, trying to figure out what's going on. So basically, the liver cells are not now getting a signal, fight or flight. Either you're going to develop a strategy to survive or you're going to die. Hmm. In biology, the response is always throw everything, diversity, produce a million different types of cells, and one of them will be able to survive. This is how biology works, right? Hmm. One of the cells, in my opinion, and when I came up with this whole idea, it turns out that the first time this was proposed was actually 1911. But I promise you, I came up with this idea on my own. And the idea was <laughs> that a stressed tissue cell, whether it is in the pancreas or the liver or the lung, a stressed tissue cell simply is getting removed by a blood cell which come to phagocytose it, surround it and remove it, right? Well, it gets inside the blood cell but doesn't die. Mm. Rather, it re-engineers and combines the two DNA, mm. uh, the two genomes. But now the stress cell is inside a blood cell which does two things. One, it can evade the immune system entirely. The immune system treats it as a normal cell. Two, it can travel all over the body now. It can get out of that organ. In mm. fact, the only way a metastatic cell can get out of the organ of origin 
is by hitching a ride on something that normally goes out. So if I understand this correctly, Asa, what you're saying is that errors are unavoidable, an error happened, and you try to locally uh, eliminate that error, but unfortunately the error actually uh, gets into you, into the red blood cell, and uh, the error is not really eliminated, it, it actually takes a ride um, on that. Um, and not, so, a, not a red blood cell, but an immune cell. Or immune cell, yeah. And so the reason this is happening, so I'm, I'm sort of rewinding time back 200,000 years, you know, we lived maybe for about 40 years. We didn't really have to worry about this type of stuff. Um, it, it didn't really matter. I mean, there were a lot of, there were errors, but then, you know, we were eaten by a tiger by 35. So, you know, nobody had to worry about it. Uh, but now we have to worry about it. So this is the, is this sort of the issue that we are dealing with? I mean, the, the, the system is sort of tuned for, let's say, 30 to 40 years. And now we, we don't go away in 30 to 40 years. That's a very good question. Actually, I've been um, doing a lot of reading and, and, and listening to talks on aging. And I believe the consensus of the people who work on aging Uh, is that the person who's going to live, you know, right now the longest living person is 122 years. They're saying that the person who's going to live to be 150 years was already born in 1990s. Mm. And why do they say that? They say, well, look, if the life expectancy is around 80 years right now, then an outlier can live to be 122. But life expectancy, if we extend it to 100 years, outliers will live to be 150. We're not saying that, you know. So basically the idea that when you say that if life expectancy was 40 years, we are pushing the system too much by living to be 80 even. I think the consensus of the aging group is that it's not aging is essential, but that the human body can continue to function well into becoming centenarians and some of them even reaching that 150 years. Now, people are actually proposing that within the next 20 years or so, life expectancy can be increased for at least the developed countries to reach about 100. I mean, if we take care of a couple of chronic diseases, like diabetes and cancer, heart disease is pretty much 70% mortality is down. So I think that's a that's a that's not an unreasonable assumption at all. And people have done a lot of work on it. My thing is that these are canonical responses to stress because our body is being stressed all the time. And it's a, a canonical response of cells to cooperate in the times of stress and combine their so the first cell is actually a giant cell because several cells or two cells have combined. And there is 
the first time this was uh, suggested was by Otto Eichel, a German, um, actually, gynecologist, who said that, uh, that at least metastasis arise as a result of a, tissue, uh, a, a cancer cell joining with a white blood cell. And then since then, like every decade, there have, there have been data coming out, but everyone is so obsessed with just the sequencing for finding mutations that even getting papers published in this area is next to impossible. Yeah. I want to go back to one thing that you said as well. So inflammation, uh, I had a, a few people on, you know, talking anywhere from Alzheimer's to diabetes. Um, so, so what is your perspective on inflammation? So inflammation, in some sense, the, the body's response to an injury, it's raising a red flag and saying, go mend this place. But then if inflammation is too high, it has its own deleterious effects, right? So do we have sort of an optimum inflammation regime that we can we can design? It's a great question. And that's what I keep asking my dermatologist uh, who is supposed to remove wrinkles from my face. <laughs> that a little uh, low-grade inflammation that they can cause by all kinds of threading and rollers and things like that is actually good because it causes this uh, outer skin layers to slough off and rejuvenated fresh cells come out and things like that. So you're absolutely right that if we could find that perfect balance between low-grade inflammation, that's not doing too much damage, but that is attracting <coughs> uh, the cells to come out and clean up a lot of the debris. And so, but, but if it gets higher, then it's very, very problematic, right? So, so what's the connection between inflammation and cancer? Is there any? Uh, absolutely. The, everyone has shown over and over that um, in areas of chronic inflammation, that's where cancer arises, whether it is uh, ulcerative colitis giving rise to cancer, or it is H. pylori infection. In the, uh, in the stomach, or it is a human papilloma virus in the cervix causing inflammation, or it is hepatitis B virus, or inflammation caused by exposure to toxins. The, it's always this kind of stress that causes inflammation, which means all these cells arrive, arrive the, the blood cells arrive in an organ trying to clean up the mess. And um, if the stress persists, then many bad things can happen. Many of the chronic diseases are a direct result of stress. Uh, I mean, of inflammation, chronic inflammation. Yeah, that's so interesting, Asra. So do, do you think we can create a technology that measures stress, um, you know, sort of a body, whole body stress metric? of some sort, because uh, it, it seems like if, if stress is uh, not mental stress, but sort of the body's stress is causative to a lot of diseases, including type 2 diabetes. Uh, 
if you can pick it up early, we can probably proactively intervene with that, right? What a brilliant question. It's like you read my mind. That's what I feel that the treatment of cancer in the very near future will not be trying to kill cancer cells, but trying to take care of the stress that is caused in the organ, which forced the first cell to arise. How can we measure it? Very simple. Actually, we can measure stress cytokines, proteins that are produced in chronic inflammation by doing metabolomics just from liquid biopsies. You take a few cc's of blood and you measure the stress signals there. They're all shed into the blood. So through metabolomics, through measurements of glycans, through measurement of proteomics, stress signals can be picked up but nobody is paying attention or very few people are paying attention because everyone else is just sequencing. Now, <laughs> you know, there was this wonderful congressional hearing last week on healthcare and um, going forward with the DARPA-like project for cancer, which uh, is putting in, you know, like $6 billion more into cancer research if it comes through in President Biden's budget. And my friend and colleague and someone I deeply admire, Leroy Hood from Institute of Systems Biology in Seattle. In my opinion, the most brilliant man. By the way, he's also an engineer like you. So he belongs to the Academy of Engineers, to the Academy of Science, Academy of Medicine, because he has a MD, PhD, engineers, everything. And he has gotten the National Medal of Science by President Obama personally. I mean, one of the most thoughtful people. He is now doing something called a million um, person project. And he is measuring thousands of analytes, he calls them which are composed of this kind of stress signatures we are talking about. All types of proteins he's picking up and metabolites of proteins. And out of 50,000 or so analytes that he can measure, basically following these patients, some of them develop multiple sclerosis, some will develop cancer, some develop dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Now you can predict what were the stress signals before they got to that. He calls, so this is being called beyond the human genome project. Beyond the human genome, we have to move beyond. And Leroy Hood is the most important voice he says, well, he calls it the phenome, which is everything that's not the genome is the phenome. Because, you know, the phenotype of, a, of anything is determined not just by the genotype, but the genotype plus the microenvironment in which it is present. What are the stresses? What is happening? So the phenome measures everything, which is not genome, but he's also measuring the genome. However, this is beyond the human genome project. I think that you hit it really correctly by asking the question, how can we measure this, these signs of chronic inflammation that's going to cause all kinds of diseases, not just cancer, but you know some of these 
chronic uh, neurologic diseases and especially I'm so concerned about Alzheimer's now that I'm reaching that age. I mean, these are all very serious issues and they are because of chronic uh, stresses that we can pick up. I think you must interview Leroy Hood. Yeah, I, I would love to have him um, as well. So uh, this is a bit morbid, but I want to ask you this. So do we have any data on sort of physical stress on a person before that person dies? In other words, death is so final, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, I would imagine there is something going on in the body before death. Have, have we sort of looked at that? No. In a generalized way, the way you are pointing, I think we can measure many of these uh, kinds of signals that are leading towards a terminal phase transition, let's call it, transition. Phase transition, yes. <laughs> Whatever is leading up to it needs to be measured from, um, from not just blood and saliva and urine and feces, but hair and nails. Do you know that uh, my friend, uh, Ken Pienta, who is the professor of uh, urologic oncology at Hopkins, was telling me that based on the idea that if you take one cup of water from an ocean, you can tell how much copper and zinc is half a mile down in the ocean. What would be the sort of uh, oceanographers have done this very well that they can, just by looking at that one cup of water, they can pretty much tell you what's down below. Well, Ken asked the question, then why can't we take a bit of hair and a bit of nails and ask the same thing? And it's turning out to be true. I can't uh, divulge any more because he's writing up the paper, but absolutely brilliant person, Ken Pienta. Hmm. And looks at in a very multidisciplinary approach at cancer using what uh, the great Ed uh, Wilson has called uh, consilience, which is looking across disciplines, bringing different kind of expertise to look at the same question. Yeah. Imagine oceanographers looking at cancer, engineers like yourself looking at cancer. That's, uh, you know, data, AI people, these whole different disciplines being brought together. So I think that it's a, uh, in the very near future, we will have very simple markers for things like you are asking. Pre-terminal, pre-death, how can we predict that this person is going to die within six months? Or this person is going to live barring some accident 35 more years. We'll be able to do it by measuring these things. Yeah, I mean, um, proactive intervention appears to be the game. Um, personalized proactive intervention. So if we can pick up somebody getting into type 2 diabetes early, put that person metformin early, it has a significant beneficial effect down the line for everything, right? And so it's really about 
predictability. You know, could we pick up somebody sort of progressing into a bad state early? And that person sitting on the couch for three years before coming to the clinic, by the time he or she reaches the clinic, it's potentially too late uh, in some sense, right? So this is where we are failing in the healthcare system. We are spending $4.5 trillion and we are spending all that money to, to patch things up. <laughs> Patching things up is very expensive. It's, it's a lot easier not to get the problem, right? Prevention is the best cure, yes. So this but, is something, Lee, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say Leroy Hood pointed out to the Congress that, look, with these analytes that he's measuring in individuals, here's something he can do very quickly, which is the 10 most commonly used drugs in America, 10 most commonly used drugs. They could be for diabetes and Alzheimer's and uh, uh, cholesterol, any of, you know, anything, 10 of the most common. Do you know that? 10 of the most common drugs, 90% people don't respond and they're useless for them. But we don't know who are the 10%. Leroy Hood is saying just by measuring these analytes, mm. at least he'll be able to tell who shouldn't get those 10 drugs. And saving 90% of that money, think of saving of billions and billions and billions of dollars right there. So there's so much waste in our healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, as you know, as it's also a game. Um, and so statins, uh, it is still very unclear <laughs> um, if lowering cholesterol has any beneficial effects, um, even though that is a multi, oh, hundreds of billions of dollars of all sort of statins um, in the system. And so, this goes to you know what we we're talking about before. We we use nuts and bolts statistics. I would call it p value. Um, p value is not really useful <laughs> in, in medicine, but but this is what pharmaceutical companies use. This is what uh, FDA uses to to approve or disapprove drugs. We have to move on from 1930s statistics to make this industry better. I couldn't agree more with you on this, honestly. You, you're so right, Gil, about... And so let's, let's go back to cancer and, and sort of uh, conclude on this, uh, Asra. So um, there, there are multiple issues. So is, is cancer incidence, and just looking at the US uh, population, is cancer incidence increasing or is it sort of plateaued? Where are we right now? Well, people say that if you do early detection, you have increase in incidence because you start picking up more cancers. So, uh, but if it's corrected for all those things, then the incidence is pretty stable. It's only because we are living longer, so more people are being diagnosed with cancer, but that doesn't mean the incidence is actually increasing. The prevalence is increasing. Yeah, I remember uh, Connecticut was, um, uh, was sort of the highest cancer state in the country, but it also has the highest level of screening. Screen, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. And I live in Connecticut, and we, you know, we, 
we were thinking, you know, is there something systemic here that that uh, makes cancer grow? But uh, it is clearly a function of how much screening you do. Right? Yeah, exactly. By the way, before we end, I wanted to tell you something that's uh, happened uh, with me since I wrote my book, The First Cell. Um, in the first cell, my uh, continuous uh, sort of uh, mantra is that uh, we need to diagnose all diseases, but especially cancer as early as possible. Why? Because the only good news we can give a cancer patient is it's not advanced. We can take care of it. So why just be happy with stage one, which still requires slash poison and burn? Why not go to the very beginning? But practically, you can count the people on your fingertips who are actually studying early stages of cancer, mm -hmm. maybe 10 groups. The rest of the country is all studying metastatic disease or cancer once it has declared itself. But it's too late already, in my opinion. Stage one has hundreds of millions of cells already. We need to find cancer early. So I said after the book was published uh, and we had the pandemic, so we went into social isolation, number one. Um, although I never stopped seeing patients, by the way. Um, and then I got introduced to Zoom. And <laughs> then I had the idea that why not build consensus of my colleagues around this idea? So I called my colleagues at Harvard, at MD Anderson, at Hopkins, University of Chicago, Northwestern, City of Hope, Joplin, Missouri, major institutions in the country. And I asked my colleagues, the leaders in oncology there, that do you think it is important to find cancer early or not? And if you agree with me, then you have to sign on to the revolution. Otherwise, point out the fatal flaw in my argument. Do you know not one person said no? And so we got together and we held 17 two-hour-long meetings. Imagine these are individuals who are top scientists and physicians in the country. Um, I had uh, also not just academia, but also industrial leaders, for example, the president of Regeneron and uh, the president of uh, Rare Cells and uh, Patrick Soon Shong, who is, you know, uh, an amazing um, cancer scientist and entrepreneur and has NAND uh, Nant Health is company. So I had industry leaders, academic leaders, and after 17 uh, meetings, two hour long meetings, we came to a consensus and wrote an opinion paper laying out the steps that need to be followed in the future to find cancer as early as possible. And, uh, and we published it in Scientific American on January 8th issue of this year, 2021. Now, what did we come up with? What were the steps we proposed? We proposed that in order to find illness, we must start monitoring wellness. Hmm. And how do we, we can't go out and start looking at 300 million healthy people. 
let's start by looking at an enriched population which is at high risk of getting a certain disease so we are interested in cancer let's start monitoring people who are at high risk of getting cancer who are they one group is people who smoke a lot and have lung disease already are at high risk of lung cancer another is genetically if you have BRCA1 mutation you know there is a high incidence of cancer of ovaries and breasts for women but then there is another group which is the largest in fact which is cancer survivors now i don't want anyone listening to this podcast who's a cancer survivor to get anxious your risk of getting a second cancer is low however it's slightly higher than the average population but once cancer develops then do you know that in america 20% of newly diagnosed cancers occur in a cancer survivor Mm. 20%, one in five occurs in a cancer survival. Mm. So as a group of eight institutions, we decided that we are, and, and the good thing is that these cancer survivors are already connected to the institutions because they've been treated there. They keep coming for follow-ups once or twice a year. All we ask is, why not start banking samples of them? Blood, urine, feces, saliva, hair, nails. Simple. They're all non-invasive things. Blood is the most invasive, in fact. So each institution agreed to put 2,000 new patients onto this um, cancer survivor center. And fortunately, I was able to raise $22 million to run this whole project. Money has come through. Institutions have all agreed. We should be starting. I was hoping to start before the end of the year, but that's happened too soon. So it's only a matter of, you know, the paperwork going through the bureaucratic red tapes. <laughs> However, the beauty is that within the first year, we will have 16,000 samples. And 500 of these individuals would develop a second cancer already. 500 new cancers. Can you imagine, Gil, on whom we have samples from just before, of all these compartments? Yeah. And then by the end of the third year, we'll have 50,000 patients we are following, unique patients who are cancer survivors, on whom we have samples, on whom we plan to do all the studies we talked about, the stress signals, the metabolomics, the proteomics, the transcriptomics, the genomics, multiomics. Yeah. And in all different compartments. And not just that, we are hoping to build devices like chips that can be inserted under the skin to constantly monitor the human body for these. Leroy Hood is part of my think tank and part of this whole project. Leroy Hood is a leader in this, in doing all of this kind of uh, stress signals and metabolomics, etc. Yeah. And he measuring should. these. Ask him to come on the show as well. Uh, I will introduce you by email yeah. to him immediately. Yes. So, I mean, you're doing a beautiful thing. Um, early detection, your, your campaign has been about early detection. If you can detect cancer early, it appears that we can take care of it a lot easier. And so 
but as you say on the research, if you look at the research uh, money cross-section, it, it's sort of skewed uh, to stage three and stage four on the premise that these people are in bad shape. You know, we have, we have to take care of them and we have to, but there's sort of an optim optimality question in terms of research funding, right? So if we don't get people into the, into the tube, so to speak, uh, and we, we stop them uh, at, the, at the start of it, then it has, the outcomes are so much higher. And so, so this question, this nagging question around why isn't that much research on how to stop it rather than how to treat it? And I think the answer is pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> As I say this, I came from pharmaceuticals. It's, uh, it's a lot about treatment and less about prevention. I think that is, that is one of the major issues that we have. I don't agree, uh, Gil, because pharmaceutical industry comes to academia. We are the ones doing the research. We are the oh. ones finding the targets for them. If all we give them are mutations, then all they're going to develop are drugs that target mutations or the new uh, fancy thing about immune therapies. We know the tip of the iceberg about the immune system. We know so little. Yet the human mind, the hubris, the arrogance is such that it's as if we can explain everything about the immune system by knowing this. No, we know very little about what is happening. And in our, 10 years after CAR-T therapies were introduced, we don't have successful CAR-Ts for anything because we don't have a unique marker for cancer. CAR-Ts go and kill every normal cells also. They can't differentiate between normal and abnormal cells. So, you can get rid of CD19 positive B cells because you can replace their function by giving an immunoglobulins. But you can't kill off the pancreas and try to replace the function of pancreas by anything. But 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 we want some sort of a pre-cancer state, um, just like we have pre-diabetic state yes. where we could intervene, right? So then the question is, you know, do we have enough sort of data testing? interventions pre-cancer yes. it appears not right no that's my aim is exactly what you're saying that the first cell doesn't arise out of nowhere it's arising because there is a pre-cancerous state forcing these cells to appear forcing cancer to appear alzheimer's to appear so what we need to do is change our mindset go from reactive to proactive medicine really try to prevent rather than try to cure, seriously, and turn the mindset 180 degrees around. This is what I keep saying, Gil. And a lot of people are saying it now. Like, uh, as I said, Lee Wood, for example, is one of the most amazing people who's a sane voice trying to get this done. But I tell you, I, I have very few tomorrows left. So for me, I don't want to make five and 10 year plans now. I want to make one and two year plans. And so I'm hoping to turn over the paradigm by showing success of the new paradigm, by getting the consensus of all these top leaders in academia and industry. We work together. Cooperation is the most important thing. The resources that we can bring in, both intellectual and material resources, and especially the patients we bring in, that the industry can help us study. 
we will be able to find these stress markers. And as we began by my saying that in the future, we will not be trying to kill the cells in cancer, but taking care of the precancerous stressful state in the body, the chronic inflammation, and that it will be constantly monitored so that even the inflammation is picked up very early and we know which organ is affected, we can know, go ahead and try to figure out what's going on, say in the ovaries or the pancreas, why are they being stressed, is there an infection going on? I think this is all going to happen very quickly now because so much research and technology has already been developed and done. So that once we have the right goal, and we financially incentivize that new right goal, boom, everything will turn around. But we need to show some success first. Yeah, it's about diagnostics, isn't it? Um, if we can really develop diagnostic uh, protocols, and as you know, as uh, you know, there's a whole sort of smart home thing going on. And so, yeah. um, you know, if if machines can understand what is happening to the human in in some systematic way, even before the human knows, yes, then there is a lot of value. But yeah. the technology is there already. Yeah. We just Absolutely. haven't deployed it. Yeah, that's what I was saying to you. The technology is there. The will is not there right now. The mm. will is only to be following the lemmings. I'm sorry, I'm so. <laughs> consistently critical of everybody in this area because they're not thinking. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent, Asra. I, I'm, I'm so glad we had this conversation. And you're welcome to come back uh, in April. We can talk more about this. <laughs> <laughs> I love talking to you, Gil, because you make, you always make me come out with the uh, uh, with things that are on my 3 a.m. agenda. You somehow <laughs> seem to know what is keeping me awake at night. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thanks so much. A and, pleasure. Uh, and stay safe.